Welcome to the Sydney Film Festival Talks podcast series, Keeping It Real. This series showcases several of the filmmaker talks that were held throughout the Sydney Film Festival in June 2022. In this episode of Keeping It Real, the people behind the camera, the writers, the designers, the makeup artists, the composers, come together to talk about how they see the industry and their roles. Enjoy. All right. Hello, everyone. Lovely to see you all. You're all extremely welcome to this fantastic panel this afternoon. Uh, my name's Nell Greenwood, and I am the CEO of the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Uh, and I'm delighted to be the moderator of this excellent panel today. Uh, before we formally start, I just want to acknowledge that we're here today on unceded Gadigal land. Uh, and I'd like to pay my respects to uh, Gadigal's elders, those past, present, and those yet to come. Um, our afters campus is just up the road in the EQ, uh, also on Gadigal land, and we're extremely lucky to have the support and leadership of local Gadigal elders who I just want to call out today. Uh, Auntie Rhonda Dixon-Grovener, who's the daughter of the great Chica Dixon, and her daughter, Professor Nadina Dixon. And I also just want to send, uh, extend my respects to any uh, First Nations people who are joining us today for this wonderful talk. All right, everyone, so I'm joined by an incredible panel of people today to talk about Australian craft in uh, screen stories. Uh, often when we talk about movies and screen stories, we think about movies and directors, uh, but today really is all about drawing back the curtain and putting a very well-deserved uh, spotlight on the crafts and the artists, uh, the designers, editors, composers, cinematographers, soundies and writers who make it all happen. This year, Afters is delighted to be uh, launching a new uh, award here at the Sydney Film Festival. It's the uh, Afters Craft Excellence Award. It's going to be a $1,000 prize. It will be um, awarded at the final night of the festival, recognizing excellence in a craft practitioner on one of the short films that's screening at the film festival, something we're very uh, excited by. So looking forward to having this conversation today and an incredible panel joining us. I'm going to start at the end and <laughs> work it down. Uh, now, if I was reading everyone's full credit list, we would be here for a very, very long time, such as the illustriousness of this panel. So I'm just going to pull out a few highlights and everyone can see the names and have a good Google and you can see what incredible company we're in today. Uh, but Anthony Partos, who is the, chair, the president of the Australian Screen Composers Guild, uh, one of Australia's most awarded screen composers. His feature film credits include Rams, Animal Kingdom, Home Song Stories and Unfinished Sky, all of whom won him uh, AFI Awards for Best Feature Scores. Uh, he's also walked, worked across television, The End, Total Control, where he collaborated with Missy Higgins, which was amazing, Rake and Red for Now, uh, and international uh, projects include the Academy Award-nominated feature Tanner, the BAFTA-nominated feature documentary Sherpa, uh, and HBO feature film Fahrenheit 451, which premiered at Cannes. Welcome, Anthony. We also have with us who's stepped in at the 11th hour. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam Meikle, who is, again, brilliant screenwriter. Over 200 hours of produced drama, uh, including, I think, all of the great Australian shows, Sam, but including The Secret Daughter, Here Come the Habibs, uh, nominated for 11 Australian Writers Guild Awards and won four. Most recently, has worked on Mavericks for ABC. And incidentally, he's also an amazing Afters alum. We have also with us Fiona Donovan, who is vice president of the Australian Production Designers Guild. She's designed incredible amounts 
amounts of television and film, including Pack to the Rafters. 2017, Fiona won the Actor Award for Best Production Design for A Place to Call Home. Also nominated for an APDG Award in 2017 and an Actor Award in 2016. Welcome, Fiona. Also, we have Carolyn Constantine, ACS, who's the first female president of the New South Wales branch of the Australian Cinematographer Society. Incredible range of work across feature film, TV, and commercials. Pent Up House and Somersault are both Dendi Award winners. Uh, she also worked across documentaries, um, including Wide Open Sky, which was a winner of the Sydney Film Festival 2015 Audience Award, Wildside, Young Lions, All Saints, Rake, and please like me amongst many, many others. And finally, we have with us Simon Yeo, incredible editor, who's worked on The Babadook, The Nightingale, and most recently, The Stranger, which just premiered at Cannes. Also, uh, Simon worked on the incredible feature documentary, River, which was directed by Jen Peter, beautiful film. So I think big round of applause to welcome this incredible panel. All right, I thought just to settle us all in, we would start with a kind of quick fire introduction where I'm going to ask you all to talk a little bit about what craft means to you. Uh, we've also got with us the brilliant Rowan Woods in the audience. When I spoke to Rowan about what we were talking about today, he was like, oh, craft, <laughs> a vexed question. And it really is, isn't it, the idea of craft versus artistry versus story. So I'd really love to settle us all in with just a, a bit of a take from you on what craft excellence means to you all and what it means to you in your particular discipline. We might start with Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the word craft is, is slightly uh, problematic, but basically it's just uh, going to a project and bringing to someone else's story. I think this, we all do this not you so much, but bring to someone else's story a point of view, a way through the incredible mass of ideas and complexity of, you know, the psychology of the, of the subject, being able to accompany the director in the realisation of their vision in the most interesting and elegant way, I think. And for me, it's, uh, I think that if you work in, if you're interested in working in cinema, then you should, th the first thing that you should do is, is hone in on what you're interested in and pursue that so that you can apply your passion to the sorts of projects that are going to benefit the most from, from, from that passion. So for me, it's, I guess that it's about, it's just about that. And it's highly, you know, it's just encouraging that collaboration and thoughtfulness of process. Beautiful. Lovely. Caro, for you. I do find the word craft a little problematic or a lot problematic because it only explains one aspect of who I am or we are as cinematographers and artists. So I do consider ourselves as artists and key creatives. And so, but craft is a fundamental foundation of what that is and what we bring to a project. So we're there to help bring the director's vision to light, but we're bringing our own creative ideas along with that. I mean, that's what I love about film. It's such a creative, collaborative process. So I suppose the craft aspect of what I do gives me the freedom to creatively express the story that I'm telling um, along you know, and the story I'm telling with the director. So I think the stronger my craft and my skill set is, the more freedom I have when I'm there in the moment creating and collaborating with the director, but the, the performances as well. So you're in the moment. And so it gives you a really strong foundation. So I, I think it's a, a really important aspect of what we do to consider and make sure that's solid and strong. And also your craft skill set is always changing and evolving and building so it's something that is never static or stagnant and that's sort of the fantastic 
aspect of what we do. It's 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 never it's ever changing and always keeps you um, involved. So yeah. Fantastic, thanks, Carol. I love that the separation of it's the self. It's craft as a collective maybe is a problematic, but craft as a thing in and of itself, obviously something incredibly key and fundamental to what we do. Fiona what she said (laughs) so craft I take offense at the word craft because I think it denigrates what we actually do and I think we were all talking about it before I think you actually put it really well Michael I'm going to steal that craft is what we do in the process by which we do it so as a head of department I'm the key creative and the people working for me and the process by which I get to where I do is my craft but what I do is creative so what what I bring to a project is to support the script and the story and elevate through the process of production design. So I'm not, to be able to do that, I need to have a craft and a strong foundation of process. So I think process for me is a better word for that because it's a process by which I approach every project. And it's, it is the same. You start with a script, you collaborate with your key creatives. It's, it's so important, the relationship between the director and the designer the director, the designer, the DOP costume makeup is like so key because we create the visual look of what's happening. So for me, it's a, a very, very collaborative process. So I don't like the word craft. I feel like we're key creatives and what we do is bring our creative process to the project. Yep. Yeah, excellent. And, and Sam, for you as a writer, an interesting thing as well, I think, because again, just on the other side of things and being a writer myself, it's, I think craft is often one of those things that's not overlooked, but I think people sometimes don't realise how fundamental and, and critical it is to incredible screenwriting is that mastery and understanding of craft. So I want to take a contrary position to my esteemed colleagues, and they are esteemed. They're all excellent at what they do. But I actually think that the notion of craft is the whole ball game. It's not to say that everybody on this panel are not artists. They are, and they are brilliant artists. But I think the way, I th- the way you put it, in terms of, and and the way Carolyn put it, in terms of a body of skills that allow you to express the artistry within is absolutely true. And I guess the way I look at it, a craft is the... They're the, tool, the, the tools that you use to, to, to be creative. And the thing that's great about craft is that it is an access point to what we do. There are very few people who come into this industry as fully formed artists. What you come in to this industry with is a desire, a love, a passion. And then you develop that artistry over time. And the way you develop that artistry is by acquiring craft skills, practicing, and then elevating. For me, art is alchemy. It's taking all of that craft and then art elevates it. it there's a magic to it that comes from the artist. When, when you have a, a paintbrush in your hand, I can't do that. Like mm. there is something that when you're behind the camera, I, when you're at an edit suite, when, you're, when you have an instrument in your hand, I can't do that. Th- these people are artists and it's underpinned by a body of craft. But that art will never be as good as it could be without that body of craft. Craft is the engineering. It is the scaffolding that raises art to the level that we all remember and that we all take home with us once we turn away from a screen or leave a cinema. 
Excellent. Thank you, Sam. And Anthony, how are you going to land on this? Well, uh, yeah, I wanted to be the only contrarian, but you jumped in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mind the, the, the term. For me, I've always viewed artists as uh, individuals working on their own craft themselves. Um, to be a craftsman, it, it, it does require not only your own artistry, but that ability to collaborate and tell story and also it's a variety of skills so it's not only your technical experience and your education but it's also largely your personality and how you can respond to creative challenges and how you can adapt to direction and turn it to a positive because no one in their right mind really likes criticism because you try to think okay this is I've created this immaculate conception and uh, and that's what God said and this is it but uh, when it's uh, the the notion of craft incorporates feedback and and the ability to adapt and and manipulate your work to reflect what the director or whoever's calling the shots desire is but in within your own voice yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And we were talking about that before, weren't we? The idea that your sort of ability to, to hone and know your craft and your experience does allow you to be a more kind of adaptive and confident problem solver. That, you know, when you're in the situation on set, I think we're talking about where, you know, it's like the whole thing is rewritten or a location falls over. You do have the confidence with that set of craft skills, that, that resilience and that sense of actually being able to, you were talking about it, Sam, being able to hit your mark over and over again because it's not, again, that God-given, is it going to cut the elusive muse? It's actually about these set the skills that you've honed over many years in terms of being able to kind of keep delivering brilliant screen content. And, and that is the difference between a professional and an amateur. It's, no, it's not that an amateur can't produce brilliant artistic results. Of course they can. But a professional will deliver every time or very nearly every time. And I think the other thing about craft is it depends on where the job's coming from. Like sometimes when you come to a job, you are leading that job. Sometimes you are working to a vision a craft allows you to work to a vision and art is the vision. Mm. And knowing the difference between the two things and why you are being brought to a job tells you how to approach it. But all of it is underpinned by craft. I wonder if craft isn't, because the, the really interesting thoughts in that, in there, and I, I just wonder if, if craft isn't what I'm watching when I watch Taxi Driver and if creativity isn't what I'm engaging in when I'm in the edit room working with a director, crafting their film. I don't, I don't like the verb to craft a film, but maybe that's, maybe that's a distinction that's useful, that when you see the finished product, that then you can say, I can appreciate the craft involved in the production because of the collaborative nature of filmmaking and everyone's contribution results or culminates in a crafted piece. But when we're all doing our own thing, the film doesn't exist yet, um, and we're just kind of reaching for something, and that's just creativity. I think it's really interesting we're all guilds, and guilds came out of master crafts yes. people, yes. and it may be using the term that way, but it's yes. when I think about craft, it's been denigrated a lot. Yeah. So that's, I think that for me that's why I much prefer, you know, key creative or it's the creative process than the word craftsperson. But I, it is really interesting that we are craftspeople, like you're saying, Sam, that we, we're professionals. So I can, I can approach a project and know that 
what I can and can't deliver and I can communicate that. Yeah, and I think, again, that idea which I think is so interesting about this kind of screen craft is the collaborative nature of it. And it really is about, you know, when you think about craft being something, sometimes it can feel a bit singular that you're doing something, but the idea of how you're doing it, in your, in you all work very closely with your teams and then your teams are all working very closely with multiple other teams in the pursuit of this single coherent piece which has to engage audiences are pretty extraordinary. And do you think, how does kind of collaboration work, I suppose, as part of that kind of craft process? And for all of you as extraordinary sort of craft people, if we can say that. <laughs> Um, Caro, what do yeah, you reckon? I think, I mean, I think the collaborative aspect of it is is super important. I mean, you, you, you're collaborating up, but you're also collaborating down. I mean, there's so many people that are that uh, that you're working with. So, I mean, that's a skill in itself. How do you, how do you organise? How do you communicate? How do you inspire? How do you motivate? Day after day, you know, standing in the rain, standing in a thunderstorm, being you know shut down by COVID, getting back. You know, there's so many aspects of of the skill set that's people managing, and um, and I think to get the best out of your teams and then the best results for the the project, I, I think that's a that's a skill in itself and uh, something that you learn, which is I suppose you know part of the craft, part of the process and skill sets that you're learning. Mm. Does anyone else want to add on that, Sam? Okay. Uh, how do you collaborate? Yeah, and I guess collaboration is a part of that. Yeah. That, that, that the perception of craft and being really sort of excellent and a master craftsperson and how collaboration feeds into that. Is it this the capacity to be able to collaborate? But if you could go into a bit more like what that means, as Carol was saying. It's really, so it's really interesting. When you're a writer, particularly in television, you work in writer's rooms and you can be in a good room or you can be in a bad room. And the difference between a good and a bad room is generosity and a lack of ego. For me, working in an environment where I feel safe to put up any idea, either as a creator and a showrunner or alternatively, if, if I'm working for somebody, I feel a really strong, a passionate responsibility to give them as much as I can to work with because it's about achieving their vision. And I guess what I would say is the key to collaboration, whether you're working for somebody or whether you're working with people or whether you've got people working for you, is being very, very clear about what the vision is and what the expectations are and making room for people to put up ideas, to make mistakes, because even when people make mistakes, I have seen some of the most shockingly good results come from mistakes. Mm. And having an environment that that has that generosity and that desire to build and make something good and have the best idea win, for me, that is the greatest collaboration, whether you're running the show or whether you're working for somebody. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's largely to do with trust. It, you ha- if you're in a collaboration where a director has uh, is is not micromanaging or or in any situation, they've chosen you for the project and they're trusting your expertise. It's not to say it's a one way street, but it's I'm one of the few composers who actually like composing in collaboration, and every collaboration is entirely different because it's like it's like any any relationship, you know, is, there's a certain chemistry that can, can work and others, it doesn't. It's, it's not to say it's wrong, but um, some collaborations don't work just because you, you just don't click and it's a, it's a hard thing to quantify. Uh, but certainly with composing, there's no hard and fast rule. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be in the room with another person and we'll, we'll just jam something out or, or other times we'll be in our own rooms working on ideas and then sh- uh, swapping files and then collaborating that way. So, I mean, it's very specific 
what I'm talking about to composing, but largely it is about the trust, yeah. It's interesting, like, thinking about all these things and pulling out for a second. I mean, when you think really that Australia does punch above its weight in the crafts, if you look at, like, Cannes this year and well done, Simon, uh, but also that we had Elvis, 3,000 Years of Longing, obviously with the success of Power of the Dog. What is it, do you think, and is there something in particular about Australian sort of crew and Australian craftspeople that does give it this kind of level of international clout and success? And Sam, you're nodding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Australians really do punch above their weight, and I think, I think there are two main reasons behind it. The first is that we tend to be relatively agnostic. So you can design Pack to the Rafters, but you can also design A Place to Call Home, two extraordinarily different shows. A lot of the other major entertainment industries get you to specialise. And so one of the things that Australian artists are really good at, I've got a friend who calls us Swiss Army Knights because <laughs> Australian, Australian artists, Australian craftspeople are able to go to a job, be very focused, work out what it is and then bring all of their skill and their craft to it and do it really well. The other thing is that we're used to working with less money and under quite difficult environmental issues. Sometimes I've just shot a show in Alice Springs that we started in February when it was 39 degrees. At the, when we finished, it was 18 degrees in Adelaide. Australian crews are just magnificent. And the combination of those two factors makes us able to deliver fantastic results with whatever you give us. Yeah, amazing. And that's, I'm not going to put you on the spot here, but you were just saying earlier that you'd worked in France and obviously you've worked on international films. Could you make any kind of comment as well about any differences or anything? Uh, I mean, I, I don't particularly want to comment on the um, Australia punching above its weight thing because I actually don't, I don't subscribe to anything. I don't, I don't know what the purpose of, of, of that idea is. Um, I think that, that um, film production, and I, I, I will keep my comments to film production because that's my area of expertise. I think that there are national cinemas that come from all, all over the world and they are, the best ones are unique. And, um, you know, to, to say that somehow that's, that's, I don't know, that's due to some, some, some unique kind of national you know, um, fairly arbitrary boundary. I, I just, I, I just don't see any evidence of it. I don't, I don't, I don't know what purpose that it serves to say that. And I, you know, I, I have worked extensively um, in in a non-English speaking country, and it was it's really interesting because I did, you know, I went to university here and I I studied film here, and I did hear that you know Aussie crews they're fantastic, we're amazing, we're amazing, and you kind of go, okay, we're amazing. And it's just really interesting to go and work somewhere where there is a really strong national cinema. I think it's, you know, I don't think there's anyone who would deny that French national cinema is really strong. The fact that they produce a lot of really rubbish films notwithstanding. I didn't hear in, in my 12 years working in that industry anyone say anything about French films or film crews or cinema culture being better than any, any other countries. So I think that that's a particularly Australian thing that actually has little to do with cinema and more to do with just who we are as a nation. We, 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 we tend to kind of want Australians to be better than everyone else. I don't know where it comes from, but it, it exists, and I think that that thing about punching above your weight is just an expression of that. 
I actually think crews here are more open, having worked overseas as well, I think we're open to helping each other out more. So we're less, the way that the set is structured is less, on a big film, is less delineated like it would be in the States or even Canada. And the, it has the, the control, I mean, I'm very pro-union, but the way they run the unions there is not necessarily the best way to do it. So I think, you know, not being able to move set, I mean, I know of productions being shut down because the production designer wants to move a vase and I kind of think that's ridiculous. We're Whereas in Australia, everyone's happy to jump in and try and help. And it's about getting, we're all there for the process and we're all happy, we all want to problem solve and make the process be as, as efficient to realise the vision as possible. So Yeah, very interesting. And again, great to have some healthy disagreement on a Sunday afternoon, exactly <laughs> what these panels are all about. Um, and what do you reckon in terms of like where we are now, kind of national, international, sort of looking at the whole, I guess, just craft in general? Things like, I mean, obviously we hear that we're in the middle of an international sort of global deluge of content, huge amounts of content being made all across the world. How has, I guess that's obviously one factor, COVID has obviously had a massive factor as well on, in terms of how people have made things. How, I guess, has that impacted your own, I guess, experiences quite specifically? And also, I guess, any observations on what it might have done to your particular area or your, or your sense of craft? And, and Caro, because you were talking before about the trials and tribulations of multiple shutdowns and oh. unwell crew members. Well, I think the last two years, I mean, between the, the weather and COVID, it, it has made production in Australia quite difficult. I mean, I hate the word pivot, but oh my God, we've been doing some, we've been doing some pivoting. Um, just because you know the, the day the day before we can lose a location, or we shut down because of lightning storms, uh, or the, the lead actors yeah. got COVID, or even you know the the actor that's just coming in the, in for that day. So I mean, it has been. It has been tricky, and we've had we have have had to sort of make last minute turns, and and crews have been fantastic. I mean, I, I can't compare Australian crews to any other crews. I, I, I probably think crews around the world are pretty amazing, but I, I do think we're resourceful when we're passionate, and I think that's probably helped. And we do, and I do really agree with Fiona as far as just pitching in across disciplines. departments and disciplines. I think that has helped, and perhaps that we've also. I mean, I don't know about everyone, but I, I've. I've done a lot of documentary making in my background, so I think sometime that I draw upon that, not lack of resources, but less resources when I'm sometimes faced with situations on a drama set so that you can draw upon, you know, a, a, like recently when the uh, the grip truck got bogged and um, <laughs> we had a... a a dolly shot to do and I just remembered from my early days actually shooting with Kate Shortland yeah. in one of our short films when we couldn't afford a dolly I, I said to one of the the young groups because the rest of them were trying to dig the truck out of the bog go and we were luckily we were on a hospital set I said go and find me a wheelchair and a plank of wood <laughs> <laughs> and uh, pretty much you know that was that was the dolly shot so it's that resourcefulness that I sort of I remembered oh yeah well I did some a fantastic you know 360 tracking 360 shot with Kate down in museum station you know 25 years ago so what well, let's you know let's put that same bit of uh equipment to the test now and you know no one could tell no one knew the, the grip truck got bogged that day so yeah yeah absolutely and obviously it was a very interesting time I think COVID as well in terms of it was a time of you know lots of ups and downs highlighted various pressure points I think within the industry and one of them of course being around well-being and obviously all of you here representing guilds today and I think the guilds 
played such an important role in COVID in terms of that sense of community and just looking at some of the Guild's websites, it's fascinating and I think really brilliant to see how much support's being offered. I was noticing, Anthony, that the ASCG has a health and wellbeing committee. Yes, we, well, it, I think it's it's slightly dormant at the moment, but um, yes, it, we're very conscious of, of mental health. Just composers seem to be prone to, to it and so it, the fact that we haven't been able to until recently physically get together. It's, it, I think a lot of our members found it very isolating. So that's why just we even yeah, had, had a hotline for people to, to call and, and a whole bunch of information services for people to access. And we're all, yeah, we're all sensitive at the Guild, <laughs> very sensitive people. So it's a very healthy community um, because we all feel as though we're in the same boat. And I think it's fair to say for most most of the guilds, it's we make a living not by trying to undercut each other in terms of lowering prices. It's all it is a, about personality and integrity and talent, and we all recognise that. So, it, it, therefore, it is a, a supportive environment for the, uh, and and that's why people I think are drawn to the to the guilds. Yeah, it's great. I think Fiona, you were talking as well about we were talking about you know because obviously a panel like this is a wonderful opportunity as well for people who may not be in the screen sector to think about you know what the possibility of a career in the screen sector might be like. So one of the things we did want to talk about was some of the opportunities and also some of the challenges. And one of the things we did talk about Fiona was things like very long days on sets and you know the pressure that puts you know often you know how how that works, balancing that with things like family lives and other commitments. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Um, so I think during the pandemic, we actually started doing Zoom calls. So the Production Design Guild covers screen and uh, live performance. So the, those disciplines actually, we supported each other's quite a lot. And then out of that also, we did dialogues in design where we thought, how can we bring the community together? So we had people interview practitioners or designers who've been around a long time. But I think the the nature of what we do is quite rigorous and demanding. And I think it's really good. I mean, I, I started as a runner and a design assistant on Wildside and Caro. And um, I think coming up through it, you kind of, it's like I say to my crew, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It doesn't matter what length of the show. And we do very long days and we, we're very, very dedicated to our craft in a way and I think it's important to support each other in that so I the guild has been fantastic for designers to kind of talk about how we can support each other and then also to the outward world explain what we do because a lot of people don't even within our industry don't actually understand what people do in the art department so I mean we've done a document which explains what everyone does and then we've also done one about the live performance have done one as well but it's really also letting everyone else know what we actually do why we spend the money we spend why we need the crew that we need and how the process works and I think that even in the industry people sometimes are quite mystified by what the art department does yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely uh, and in terms of I think it's an interesting one in terms of the thinking I guess about pathways in and and how you do actually kind of demystify some of that thinking around all the way from you know what do different roles do what does an editor do and actually where does that begin where does it end and obviously it's changing a bit as well so I suppose for people who might be in the audience thinking about, you know, ways to get in and ways to actually think about coming in, obviously there is the role of the guilds, but we'd love, I'd love to hear a bit as well about your own pathways in, and particularly thinking about, 
you know, you're all sitting here as incredible sort of exemplars, really, of your areas and your discipline, having, you know, worked incredibly hard. So just that, I guess, again, that further demystifying around, and I'm sure you've all had very different paths. But Simon, do you want to, could you talk a little bit about how you found your way here? Um, sure. I mean, it's, it's difficult because that, that thing about working really hard, I mean, I think, I think you know, it does, it does talk to that idea of what's expected of us and, you know, well, you, 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 you must really love doing what you're doing because it's really badly paid, the hours are really long and, um, and, and basically, you know, like, no one knows what you do, no one knows what I do. Like, it's just a totally, you know, it's a total mystery. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I work with assistants and I'm constantly having to literally lift them by the shoulders and say, it's home time, you have to go home now. But at the same time, like, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I did that as well. Like, I, when I was trying to get in and when I was, you know, working on, I mean, I did night shifts on short films, literally three weeks of, of working from six and at night until six in the morning on a medium length, you know, a film on, on 35 mil. And it's insane when I think about it. And I don't want to kind of say to anyone who, who wants to get into the film industry, that's the path you've got to go through because I did it. But I also can't separate, I mean, who knows, maybe if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be in a position where, you know, for the most part, I can choose the films that I work on and have made, you know, the decision to be able to do that. For people who are thinking of getting into editing, because every pathway is different, and even pathways to editing are really different now, especially with all the different technologies, I would say that it's really, really important to have a point of view. It's really important to know the sorts of things that you want to work on. A lot of people will say, work on everything, work, do you know, do everything. And sure, that's fine. You know, that's, that's absolutely fine. But it's also, it's, for me, it's really refreshing when I meet an assistant who has a really strong point of view, has a, has a developing character and, a, 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 and taste. They don't have to be technically brilliant. Uh, you know, like it's not, it's not a kind of test of how well do you know the dumb machine that we have to use. It's, it's more... Can, what can you bring to this? What, what, what's your ideas? How provocative can you be? Because along with being um, collaborative, the, just to go back to that collaboration conversation, I think that part of our role as heads of departments in film production is to, yes, obviously be collaborative because you wouldn't get any work. You, you need to be collaborative and it's really important. But we also have to be really provocative. And, and, and I'm talking about artistically provocative and and I think that um, if you can if you're coming like if you can develop that that sense of provocation and the sense of you know not just slavishly doing things that you've seen before but trying to develop a, a point of view and a taste then that's that's the best way in. and then just you know knock on the doors and just keep knocking. So much in there. It's really really so fascinating in terms of that that idea of discernment as well and also the idea of those you know the whole Malcolm Gladwell thing is a thousand hours that you need of just doing and trying and trying and doing. We just like to kind of segue a little bit into that whole idea of like on the job versus formal training. Obviously with a bit of a thing to spruik <laughs> uh, being here uh, at afters. But um, Sam, I thought you had a really interesting pathway. You had studied at afters. You also studied at NIDA. Uh, so you've had a really interesting pathway where. And can you talk a bit about that, about the difference, and I guess the balance, and then I guess the the virtue of formal training as well as on the job training? So I did a, a graduate diploma, which became a master's. So I was at the AFTRS for two years in '99 and 2000. When I was in my master's year at Afters, I also applied to the NIDA Playwright Studio, and I did them at the same time in 2000. Oh, wow. um, what I knew was that I wanted to, in some ways, my motivation was both artistic and personal in that 
I was at film school. My, I had been with my then girlfriend, now wife, who is the president of the Australian Screen Editors Guild, um, and I knew that I, I knew that I wanted to marry her, and I knew I wanted to have a family. At the same time, as I knew that I wanted my life to be about writing and about making things, and so I looked at the the broad entertainment landscape, and I thought, how can I do what I want to do, which is write, but also have a life, have a have a be able to support a family if if that's the way we decide to structure our lives. So I started doing observerships in television while I was in my final year of masters and doing the playwright studio, and I got into writers' rooms. And at that time, it happened that in October of my final year, I went to a show called All Saints. I got on really well with the script boss. And it happened that somebody had been promoted inside the department that week and they were looking to hire somebody starting in February. I had a job to go to as a shit kicker in the script department, getting coffees, making notes, proofreading scripts. And that's what I went to and I was glad to have it. I then, 18 months into that, was handed a script and said, this is your your shot. I wrote that script while working full-time in the department and it went well. And then Channel 7 used me on a number of their shows. That gave me that body of craft that we were talking about. And then I went freelance and I was able to do script produce, uh, a show called Out of the Blue for BBC and Channel 10. And then I was freelance writing across networks and across different shows, just building that experience and building that craft. And then eventually I went into creating and show running shows, which is what I do now. But it's a 20-year process. And it's based on a body of craft. But it's also, I think, the reality at the time, when I look at the year 2001 and the year 2022, there were two to three times the number of shows being made and the number of films being made. And there were two to three times the number of episodes within those shows being made. So there's been a contraction of the industry of something in the order of four to five fold. So it's really, really difficult. And the way that you used to get into writing was to write a show that was on air really well and then that would open doors for you. The way forward now is very, very different. Firstly, because it's very difficult for emerging writers to get into writers' rooms because there aren't that many of them and they tend people you tend to hire people you know. But the other thing I would say is, just to come back to something that you were saying, Simon, is one of the advantages that we... Uh, that we writers have is that we don't have to wait for anybody to do what we do. If you have the drive and if you have something to say, you can put it on paper and you can, and then the trick is, can you get somebody to read it? Because I guarantee you, if you are a really good writer and you can get somebody who knows what they're doing and who's in a position to employ you to read you and you're good, they will find a job for you or they will pass you off to somebody else. And that is one of the ways to get in. The other way, I think, to get in is we at the Australian Writers Guild are about looking after the industrial needs of writers, both in terms of the contracts but also the conditions. But the other thing that we're really engaged with is creating access and opportunity for our members. So, for example, at the moment there's a program run being called First Break, which is an opportunity for beginning writers to understand the processes, particularly in television, because that's the largest employer for writers, to be able to get into script departments, to know what you need to do and to be able to contribute in a meaningful way. But the number one way I would say right now is to write something that I cannot get anywhere else. And the great thing is that as a writer, as an artist, if you really 
look into yourself and ask yourself, what do I want to say to the world and how can I say it in the most entertaining way possible? I can't get that anywhere else because there are seven billion, seven and a half billion perspectives on the planet right now. And if you really dig in and do the work, that makes you unique and that you, you read that. As soon as you see that on the page, you know what you're looking at. Yeah, really interesting. And I think it, you highlighted some interesting sort of points there and I'd love to do Care about this in terms of the idea of the role of the guilds in terms of pathways in and looking at things like, you know, with changes in the industry. And I think over the last two or three years, there's been COVID, the boom, there's been a whole lot of, you know, with Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movement, that real questioning of who we are as an industry and questions of whiteness and what that looks like. So, Caro, I mean, it's, you're doing incredible work at the ACS in terms of areas around sort of gender and mm. sort of, you know, promoting the, the importance and the need for more female cinematographers. Yes. Yeah, so uh, traditionally, uh, I suppose cinematography hasn't been an area that has um, nurtured a lot of women. I mean, still to date, I think we there's nine out of all the cinematographers, 9% of us are women. So that's not a great stat. And, and um, even in the uh, broader camera workforce, we've got 18% women. So that's still not great. What we've, noted, what we've noticed, and we, we've actually just uh, commissioned a report that's uh, about to be launched that's called A Wider Lens, and it's a, it's a world-first study into the, um, the, the Australian camera workforce and basically the intersectional analysis of what, what affects careers, how does it, in the camera workforce, what might accelerate them and what might be constraints. And so we sort of look at all aspects, whether it be um, age, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, all of the things and how they all intersect. And, and so it's a really detailed report and, uh, and it has actually brought up some sort of quite daunting and uh, scary statistics. But the good thing about it is that once the stats are on the paper, now we've got some information of one, one, the facts, but two, some of the whys behind these stats. And so now we can start doing some work to, to, to change this. And this is where uh, things like, uh, and we've already started, because I mean, just from my own experience, I, f- I felt like I already felt this, but I could, it's hard to talk about when the stats aren't there. Now we've got the, the stats, we can actually start making changes and initiatives. For example, there's a, there's a credit maker um, initiative that's just been rolled out with the uh, Screen Australia where women that are in mid-careers in their cinematography that, but haven't actually got a, a credit in a television show, they're going to be partnered with a, a DP where they might shoot one episode of a television series. And so they're mentored by the, the existing DP on the show. So it's sort of a formal mentorship scheme so it's not aimed at you know just getting into the industry but it's aimed at perhaps where you might stagnate in the middle of your career which is is what we found one of the most revealing graphs is at student level you know with male and female gender gender it starts off sort of quite comparable and equitable but as as you go up the ranks in your department it sort of goes like this fishtail and so you end up with 91% and 9%. So that's a pretty terrible statistic. So if we can and it, and it starts it sort of starts going a bit pear-shaped at, at the attrition rate at around the second AC level. So if we can start 
looking at you know how we how we sort of stem this attrition rate in the industry and that and that's not just about well it's a lot about opportunities but it's also about um, working conditions and you know why are people leaving you know it, maybe it's the it's the hours it's mental health issues it's many many factors and so it's and it's not just even though this study is a is a camera department study because there's just nothing pretty much in the whole world that actually looks at camera department so a lot of other international uh, cinematographer societies are actually looking at looking at our study to actually perhaps sort of do a similar thing in their own guilds but this can be sort of then used to sort of make cultural change across the broader Australian film industry which will help all departments and actually make I think I suppose what we really want to do is as as um, as our industry grows, which it clearly is and which is fantastic, what we want to do is make it more sustainable and make it more diverse. So I don't think it's about people losing out on jobs. What it's going to be is making the pool bigger and the opportunities for different people to contribute. And, and I think in the end, um, the Australian industry is going to be the big winner. So. Yeah. Um, anyone to add that? Anthony, again, I was aware that the Australian Screen Composers Guild got, got a, I think, committee and is doing some fantastic work in that area too. Yeah, well, we're, we're part of the Credit Maker Scheme too. So it's, it's uh, yeah, uh, uh, we're about to go, uh, we've put out appla- um, people to apply and then we'll assess them. But it's, it's, it has to be slightly different for composers because, yeah, because of, if you're doing a, a, a television show, a composer has the, the copyright in their themes and to try and get another a female composer for this to, to do one episode, it throws up a whole lot of creative problems and legal problems. So um, if, if we can do it in such a way where it's a genuine collaboration or if, it's, if there's a show where each episode has a distinctive flavour, then yes, and then we can um, give them that opportunity to, to do it, yeah. But, it, yeah, I, I'm, I hate to say it because... It, up until a couple of years ago, I, it didn't really occur to me the, of the extraordinary gender imbalance because, you know, I work with female editors and, and female directors and, and producers and to me it's just like they're, a director, they're good directors and they're bad directors and, and in every field I, I didn't see that um, so much but it was only talking to a fellow um, composer, Caitlin Yao, who said, yeah, the only jobs that she gets are from women directors. I'm like, really? I didn't realise it was so in, so entrenched. So, but I'm seeing the the, the curve change dramatically. I, it really. I mean, I, I see the top the top level film composers, and in my certainly so this is my perspective, but I I rate female the female composers that I know in the same in the in the same number as the top male composing people. So I I, I feel that yeah we're, we're doing great work in in this and it's it's we're turning the turning the curve pretty quickly yeah which is great to see but like you say Kara, it's fantastic to actually have that data then isn't it to, to see the, it yeah mm. to have the data and the other thing is also just other things like um the credit maker thing is where it is more mid-career dops but for people that want to just start out in the camera department i still think those traditional i mean traditionally like something like the ABC drama department, you would you would get it in there. I mean, Fiona and I both, you know, definitely had some opportunities, even though I didn't, 
I wasn't full time. Mm. I had many drama opportunities through the ABC, but because that's shrunk down, um, things more like the camera ta- attachment positions that come through uh, Screen New South Wales is really really important. And I know there's a camera, there's a register with Screen New South Wales. So if you're interested in a camera attachment, you can register there. And I, I know that's sort of a way people uh, find people to sort of come on to some of these um, shows but I just think we all need to be very I'm every um, TV drama I do now I try and make sure that there's a camera attachment we're training up someone in the department because it's uh, we just need there's a there's a shortage of skilled people in the in what we do in probably uh, probably all the departments so I think it's really important important and it's up to us to sort of make sure that we're we're training up new people and uh, training them well. It's become really apparent with the production boom at the moment there's Mm. just there's not like it's really hard finding assistance across all all departments I think it's just it's really difficult. Mm. I wanted to talk to the Mm. diversity aspect because I actually think the onus is on the heads of department in some ways to look beyond your own world because so the way people get work in the industry is actually all about who you know a lot of the time. Mm. And it's and it, and it can be very much you know someone's son get they get a job and they're friends and so I I make a very concerted effort to look beyond that mm. and I think there's the pathways are really interesting so having I see there's an amazing course in Sydney the Enmore Design Centre and the kids the kids I want to say the young adults that come out of there and amazing they have this amazing work ethic that just slots straight in which is fantastic so I always bring them the film school graduates are amazing because they have a, an understanding of the craft that's beyond that so that they can kind of slot in and they will be designing shows so the recent graduates are just fantastic I've got one on my show and I'm like oh thank god she's because I'm doing a tiny SBS thing at the moment and and then I think it's important to go I'm going to I apprenticed myself to the industry I'd done design and I went to NIDA and I'd done some architecture but I actually didn't get accepted to afters Roger Ford said just go and do it I wish I'd done it to get the contacts but I went, I'm going to apprentice myself to the industry and have worked my way up. So I understand what all the roles are in the department and I wouldn't ask somebody to do something I wouldn't, couldn't, couldn't or do myself. So, But I think the onus, I always think the onus is on me to give opportunity and I, I, I actively look for a diverse department where there, and, and even on the last job had somebody that had their ability was not my ability and we had to find an office they could have access to. It was really hard. It really highlighted to me how ableist we are in our industry. I also look towards gender and racial diversity as well across the board and, and it makes for a richer department. It makes for a richer group of people and, and what we bring to the project is a, as an art department is it's more rounded. It's like trying to get a range of age, a range of experience so that everyone's supported and then a range of gender and then a range it just of racial backgrounds and also ranges of ability is really, I think it's really important. Absolutely. And on that note, I think we've got about five minutes left. And don't worry, Fiona, I didn't get into afters either. We're a great club. <laughs> Can I just, um, can I just I jump can, in for a second? Yeah, sure. Because you asked a question which I didn't answer, which was the value of training. I just want to say when I was at afters, in the two years that I was there, I made six shorts, mostly as a writer, but also as a producer and a director, and a director to really test myself. We also made a half-hour pilot, and I made a, a 15-minute documentary. None of that would have been possible if I hadn't been able to go to afters and have 
all of that mentorship and all of those people who are just as crazy and, and insane for doing this as I was, who are willing to, to throw all their spare time in. And I guess I would say, obviously, not everybody can go to afters and to NIDA and all of those institutions, firstly, because there aren't enough places, but also because sometimes economically it's not possible. But if you have a mobile phone and you have a good idea and you have a bunch of friends, you can make stuff, you can distribute it on places like YouTube, and believe me, it gets seen. There is a place for your voice to be articulated and to be seen by people in the industry who will hire you if they, if they see it and they like it. They'll find you. So please be hopeful. Can I, can I just add, just to, just to show that um, there is more than one pathway and if, if one door slams, usually there's another one opens. I, I went through uh, Norsony TAFE. So, and that was a very strong technical background and, and base that I then launched myself off as a, um, a runner and quickly sort of got into the bottom rungs of the camera department and worked my way up through the department. So, yeah, there, there's more than one way to, to get to where you want to go. So if one door shuts, I would say uh, just find another path because I think resilience, tenacity and persistence are, are really good skills to develop if you want to be successful in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do we have any questions for our amazing panellists? Um, hi, thanks. That was great. I work in software development, which is we have technical, um, we call ourselves technical professionals, so we don't have to worry about the creativity question. Um, but we really struggle with gender diversity as well. So I think your, um, I think the camera um, study is going to have great implications for lots of other similar industries, which is really fantastic. I think it will. I hope so, yeah. yes. And data is always good. Um, <laughs> or, quick question. I'm confused because is it just for writing that the industry is contracted four to five times but there's a production boom? Like how, how hopeful should people be wanting to get into the industry in Australia? So there's a really interesting irony that's happening at the moment in my view, which is that production has expanded. Like it is, it's, firstly, there's a lot more production and that's meant that, Broadly for crews, there's been a real expansion in terms of their earning capacity. Um, so even at the lower rungs, they're earning a lot more than they were two years ago, five years ago, and that's a very good thing and we don't want that to go backwards. But in terms of Australian-made stories and created stories, the opportunity has shrunk and the big fight for us right now uh, with the removal of quotas and for, for the free-to-airs particularly but also no implica no. Um, uh, no quotas for the streamers. Yeah, no application of quotas for the streamers means that there is an enormous amount of content available, but Australian voices, Australian stories are getting squeezed out. So this is a fight for us to make sure that all of the storytellers out there, and everybody on this panel is a storyteller without question, that the storytellers can tell Australian stories. It's great that we can tell all kinds of foreign stories and be part of that process because that makes us richer but we also want to make sure that we're telling Australian stories and that those Australian stories have just as much opportunity to be seen by our audience and by a world audience. And it's very possible with a little bit of backbone from our government, which I, I feel confident the new government will have. Great, thank you. Any other questions? Uh, I just wanted to ask about, you mentioned um, uh, about freelance work. How would you go about finding work in that area? Because I have heard that it's very hard trying to find some work when you try to go freelance or... Yeah, and do you have like any that. particular area that you'd looking uh, to? Mostly, like when working? maybe getting like in ca in the camera work department, or just as a DOP, or even just as a director. Freelance, Karen? yeah, we're, we're all freelance. We're all freelance. I mean, we all work. I've freelanced for thirty years. I've, yeah, I worked at the, the ABC for ten. Sorry, I've jumped in there, but you all work on contract basis, and you're either a 
company or a PIOG, you know what? There's so much work out there. There is massive amounts. Oh, how would you get work, though? Um, well, I'm looking at camera. Like, <laughs> it's, I mean, there, I suppose that there's booking agents that you can be a part of that do actually. So when, when a production company, big or small, needs people, they'll often go to the booking agents and say who might be available. That's one way. Sometimes it takes a bit of work to get to the point where you'll be taken on by a booking agent. So I, I think it's about perhaps using social media to find sort of your tribe as far as, you know, other people that are making films I know, and posting, we need people to do this. I suppose it depends specifically what sort of work you want to do. If it, I mean, if you've got, if you've watched a show you really like, look at the credits, write to the DOP. Mm-hmm. I get emails all the time from people and I often employ them. Like I, I respond because I wrote 30 letters, 50 letters and got three replies and one was a job. That was when we wrote letters. That was how I got work. I respond to everybody who writes to me because I think that the onus is on me to not pull the ladder up. Can I also say, if so you mentioned sort of working in the camera department or being a director. They're two different things. Like, mm. like cinematography is a different art to directing. I mean, obviously they're deeply related, but they are different arts and different, and different skill sets. If you want to work in the camera department, I mean, obviously, as Carolyn was saying, there are, there are pathways there. I, I can tell you the way that the Writers Guild works, we try and put on events very regularly at for not only for our full members but also for our associate members so that they can mingle and they can meet and they can hear about opportunities. I'm not sure if, if yeah, the, the other guilds do the that. The ACS has a, has a drop-in every month um, where basically experienced cinematographers and student cinematographers and everyone in between meets informally and we usually have a a speaker that will speak to a a recent project or a new piece of equipment um, so you can learn learn something on the night and then you get the opportunity to just informally chat so there's a lot of you know ways to just sort of meet people that way i think one of the things it can when you're when you're outside and wanting to come in it can feel like you've got to scale everest to get there and to a degree that's partly true but there are also some surprisingly simple solutions and part of it is be part of the community. Join the guild that you are interested in, either as a full member if you have the credits or if you don't, join as an associate because you will start getting information flowing across your desk about opportunities, about initiatives, and that is how you can get in. Be part of your guilds because we are there for you. We want to see you succeed. We want to see you have opportunity because all of the great talent and skill that is out there that is untapped is the future for the industry that's going to make us bigger, badder and better. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. All right, well, I think that's a wonderful note to end it on. There are opportunities out there. We are in a, there's a lot of content being made. We do need more people, brilliant people uh, joining the screen sectors. So join your guild. Please join me in thanking our fantastic uh, panel today. Amazing. Sanyo, Carolyn Constantine, Fiona Donovan, Sam Meikle and Anthony Parkos. Amazing. Thank you very much, everybody.